0: Christian in the Campus is a podcast of the Rebels for Christ Campus Ministry. The college campus is a world of repeating stories, vying for students' attention and allegiance. The goal of this podcast is to orient students towards Christ in this brave new world so that we can bring about a revolution of redemption on the University of Mississippi and Northwest Community College campuses. Last week, um, we began a series on the book of Acts. Um, I'm, I'm very excited about this series. We began our uh, this school year by talking about the Lord's Prayer, in which we were looking at how Jesus was inviting us into. Uh, what we would call this revolutionary relationship uh, with God, right? This very unique relationship with God in which we see him as present and active in our here and now, uh, rather than far off and distant and remote as our culture so often uh, sees God. And so for the rest of the semester, though, we're uh, going to be looking at the book of Acts in order to understand what it means to be a people who serve a revolutionary God and to turn into a revolutionary people. The book of Acts is the account of the early church, right? This is Christianity at its most basic uh, and most kind of granular form that we get in the book of Acts. The book of Acts uh, probably stems from probably 33 AD, right? We believe Jesus probably was about 30 when he started his ministry and had a ministry of three years. And then he was crucified, right? And he was raised on the third day. And then, as the book of Acts is going to tell us tonight, uh, he spent 40 days, uh, appearing to his disciples and, and talking to them and addressing certain things to them, um, and so the book of Acts extends from that point. So right after Jesus' death um, and resurrection, uh, so about 33 AD, and it extends for about 30 years into about 60 AD, and so it covers the thir- first 30 years of the church. And as we see the first 30 th- uh, years of the church, what we're witnessing is, is the beginning of a revolution. All right. Uh, The book of Acts starts, uh, Acts 1, uh, chapter, uh, sorry, Acts chapter 1, verse 15. It starts with 120 people, right? Jesus' three-year ministry at the end of it, even, even though he's resurrected from the dead, right? You would think that would convince more people to follow this guy. But at the beginning, it's just 120 people. And so as we begin this journey in which we're looking at the book of Acts for the rest of the semester, and then we'll go into the spring as well, as we're thinking about what it means to be a revolutionary people, like the question we're trying to ask ourselves from the outset is how in the world did a ragtag group of 120 uh, followers of Jesus become the greatest social force in all of human history, right? Like the very air that you breathe, the cultural air that you breathe was set up by the church, right? Like whether you like recognize it or not, even though we live in a very secularized uh, society, right, in which there's separation of church and state, which is probably, a, you know, I would say is a good thing for the most part, right? Even though we live in a very secular society, we live in a society that has been greatly influenced by the Christian faith, right? Christians started the first hospitals. All forms of charity were started by the Christian church. Human rights, as you know it, began because Christians believed in the Imago Dei, that all human beings remained in the image of God, that it wasn't just royalty who deserved to be treated right, but every human being, right? I joke uh, when I leave my office, if you spend a lot of time in here, as I leave my office, I joke that I'm walking out into the—anybody? No, 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 no. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, if you're there, it's certainly a mission field. Bit the plebeians, right? You're all the plebeians, right? And I, you know, descend from my throne and I'm entering into the plebeians, right? But, right, the Christians believe that even plebeians, right? This is, the, that, that's a that's a common uh, a commoner in, in the Roman uh, regime, uh, was were called plebeians. Uh, and the Christians believe that even plebeians were made in the very image of God and therefore had rights, right? Science, right? Science as we know it would not exist. Hear this, would not exist if it weren't for the Christian faith, right? Because the Christians believed in a God who created the world and then said it is very, what? Good. And therefore, you can test the world, right? And the list could go on and on. We're asking this question, how did a group of 120 people turn into the greatest social force in all of human history? How did a group of just 120 people a ragtag group of followers of this itinerant rabbi named Jesus, how do they turn, how do they bring about a revolution of redemption that in 2,000 years later would see 2.5 billion people confessing Christ as Lord? Right, like your presence here is due to the fact that 120 people brought about a revolution of redemption in the Roman society and then out into the world beyond it. That's something worth grappling with. That's something worth questioning. How has this happened? This has been a conundrum for scholars. uh, Scholars have thought about and have researched for decades and centuries. Right, Book after book has been written trying to explain what many people call the improbable rise of Christianity. And so these first two weeks is we're trying to understand the foundations for this revolution of redemption that would take place through these people. Last week, we looked at the personal foundations, right? We looked at Acts chapter 2. What were the personal foundations for this group of people as they brought about a revolution of redemption in the world around them, right? We looked at the formation of the Christian church through the sending of the Holy Spirit, the preaching of the gospel, right? The first gospel message given by Peter, and then the response of the crowds. And as we looked at that, right? As we looked at that on that personal level, we immerse ourselves in this story, attention rose, right? Attention rose between the story of the early church and the stories that you live in, in in our culture each and every day, right? There's this dichotomy that we live in. There's the story of the early church in which um, it says that the people were, were cut to the heart and repented and that they moved their ownership of their lives from their own selves to being owned by Christ, it talked about how they all sought, sought forgiveness and how they began to see the world around them as something in which they could no longer be comfortable, but rather was something that needed to be saved, something that needed to be redeemed. Right And that story, the story of the formation of the early church, goes in direct contrast and direct opposition to all the stories that you inhabit in our culture each and every day. Right? Our culture that tells us to seek affirmation from others. Our culture that tells us to defend our autonomy, right? Our right to choose what we want to do, no matter what the cost. Our culture that tells us to pursue, pursue actualization, right? This idea that we would just, our, our whole goal in life is to become our best, the best version of ourself. Being cut to the heart, repenting, seeking forgiveness seeing the world around you as something from which you need to be saved and something that itself needs to be redeemed. All those things fly in the exact opposite direction of all those cultural narratives in which we live. And so the question that we like kind of ended on was like, do you actually want a revolution of redemption in your life? If this is what it looks like, if this is what it looks like to become a revolutionary people, is this something that you and I actually want? Tonight we're going to be talking about the more theological foundations. Who is the God that stands behind this group of people that brought about the transformation of both the Roman society and then through the Roman society, the rest of the world around them, and that even seeps down all the way through history, even to mine and yours' presence here tonight, right? Last week we looked at the personal, like how did that personally start, but Tonight we're going to look at the kind of theological uh, vision behind all this, right? Who is the God that stands behind this? How is God actually bringing this about through these people? But before we engage in that, I I do want to at least uh, spend a little bit more time on these three cultural narratives. This idea of autonomy, right? Or sorry, this idea of, of, um, gracious me, this idea of affirmation, right? We're encouraged to pursue our desires without them being challenged. To see if they're actually worth it. This idea of autonomy, right? That we should protect our control rather than submitting to something that is greater than ourselves. This idea of actualization, right? that we should grow, but actually not change. That, you know, we just kind of want to keep going on the up and up, but not actually repent and, like, change the direction from which we're going. And the question I just want to pose to you is, like, what do you think is the problem with each of these? Like, as we begin and as we begin to engage the God behind all this, like, I think it's important for us to understand why these cultural stories actually fall short. So what do you think? Whether it be this story of... of of autonomy, or actualization, or affirmation, like why do those stories, why, why do they fail you in the long run? Squeaky chair, man. You threw me for a loop. What do you think? Why do they fail you in the end? They come from people. They come from people. Alright, so look, one of the things we talked about last week is like they don't, none of these things lead to transcendence, right? So particularly if you think about this, become the best version of yourself. Like, that's not what the Christian faith wants for you. The Christian faith doesn't want you to become the best version of yourself. The Christian faith wants you to become something that you can never be by your own. Right? So they come from people. What else? What's do these fail you? Think like think logically. Like, why, why would this not be a good story to live in? They're not sustainable. They're not sustainable. Unpack that. I mean, you're, they're not, right? But what do you think? What do you think that means? I know. I'm sorry. I'm putting pressure. I'm putting pressure on you. Temporary. temporary. How? How are they temporary? They're not from God. They're not from God. Okay. What else? This is good. This is, these are all good and true. But keep thinking out loud. Keep thinking out loud. They're flawed. What? Flawed. They're flawed, right? In what ways are these things flawed? they short-term, so you have to keep coming back for more. Energy. Yeah. Right. The, the, they don't have staying power, right? So I mean, think about your desires. You have fleeting <laughs> desires. Right? Like you probably even experienced this. If you're a freshman, you have experienced this like coming to college. And you're like, you had something, you had these expectations, you had certain desires for how your college experience would be, and those have probably already changed. And if someone just kept affirming you in those desires, and you kept living in those desires, you would never have the opportunity to have greater desires than those, right? Like one of the like things that I think people miss about the Christian faith is it's not about the taming of desires. The Christian faith tells us that our desires are actually far too weak that they're not good enough, that we should have better desires. And therefore, we shouldn't seek others' affirmation for our desires, but we should seek others to challenge us to have better desires, to want better things for our lives, right? So what else? What else? This is good. This is good. Keep unpacking. Why, why might the story of autonomy not work out? Why should you not seek control of your life at all costs? Okay, so there's things outside of your control, right? This is one, whoever said it was flawed, right? This is one of the great flaws of, of the story of autonomy, right? Like, it's not going to work at some point. You can only control so many things. What else? This is good, yeah. I feel like in trying to do, like, what's best for myself, I you end up doing the exact wrong thing. In yeah, situation. yeah, so this actually goes back to the, the idea of desires, right? Because we have bad desires. If we're in control and we get, we get our desires, we end up finding so often... That they're not really what we wanted right so like tom brady right he, he got another year of football right for those of you who watch football he got another year of football that's that was a desire he had did he get what he wanted no <laughs> right did he get did he get his true deepest desires absolutely not he probably had should have had someone not affirm him in his desire to go play another year of football. He should have had someone confront him and say, no, hey, because he didn't just lose, he's lost a lot of football games, but he's probably going to lose his family in the process as well. That's like really sad. So we don't necessarily want the best things and so if we're always in charge, right? But what else? What else might be the problem with this story of autonomy? Just so selfish. It's selfish, but what's the problem with being selfish? I mean, I don't know. Like, so... In the process. You hurt others in the process. Why is it bad for you though? You don't have ultimate knowledge. You don't have ultimate knowledge, right? There could be a better thing, right? Like one of the great problems with autonomy. One of the great problems with autonomy is that we um, never get caught up in something greater than ourselves, right? Like, do you like the question that you need to ask yourselves if you're caught up in the story of autonomy is like? Do you really? do you really uh, want to like, the limits of your, your being and the limits of your life to be your own knowledge and your own will and your own power? Like if you look in the mirror, do you really want that to be true? How about actualization, right? Why, why should we not try to become the best version of ourselves? Why, why might that be wrong? I think there's a couple reasons. The best version of myself still sucks. Yes, thank you, Zoe, right? I mean, this is like a very me point for those of you who know me, right? You know. Um, but like, the best version of yourself is still a feeble, frail, finite human being. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, what might we become? We might become gods and goddesses. <laughs> I mean, right? We might become who God truly intended us to be. Kings and queens that rule over this earth. That will not come through self-actualization. That will only come through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in your life. That kind of transcendence, right? Like, I don't know. Like, so I, was, I, was at a, I was at a wedding this weekend. Uh, it was Ben Whitecaster, for those of you who know Ben. I was in Ben's wedding this weekend. And, um, and man, it was just like this beautifully transcendent moment. All right? I mean, it was this wonderful moment. And there are these moments where, you know, I'm driving home from it, and I just, like, remember, like, longing for a transcendence. Like, longing for something to be better than just, like, everything as it is. Because it was this taste of heaven. I have great nostalgia for college. Um, I've, I have a, a lot, made a lot of really good friends. I was really, I was really blessed uh, to disciple a lot of guys. As a Ben's two years younger than me. Um, and, and they, I, even though I discipled them, they, they poured out into me in so many beautiful ways and, and I, I have such close relationship with them and I got to like be with them again. And I just had a whole weekend in which we were just cutting up and making jokes and like sharing life together as we like rallied around our friend who had been through extreme tragedy, like multi. and we're talking back to back multiple extreme tragedies as he, on his wedding day, as he got to experience, um, the, the great joy and gift of God in his life. And like, I just longed for transcendence. Like part of the reason, like if you've been around me today, I've been in a fairly like weird mood or I've been in a straight up bad mood. Uh, like if you watched me before this, I was pacing, but like this is part of why, I would, like to be totally frankly, this is part of why. It's because right now, like this feels very feeble, this feels very frail, this feels, this is the very mundane routine that we have, right? Like we've entered into the mundane routine of the semester and I just experienced transcendence, okay? And I long for it again. Like, just to be totally honest with you, that's where I'm at. What is another reason that actualization might be a bad story to live in? It's not God's story. It's not God's story, right? It, I mean, think about right becoming the best version of myself. Who does that exclude? It excludes God. And what is the problem with it being our story instead of God's story? It's not a good design. Not a good design. Alright. So it's like part of the problem is then that like. He has a better vision of life than we do. So we, we've talked about that. Why else might it be bad? Yes. Think about the pressure that actualization puts on you. I mean, think about it for a second. If the goal of your life is to become the best version of yourself, you will be crushed. And I say this as a perfectionist. Right? If you have any perfectionist tendency, right? Like, I don't know if you've borne the way to that, but it is like soul-crushing, right? But through the power of the Holy Spirit, right? Something outside of ourselves, God can change everything about our lives and make us into even the best version of ourselves we can possibly imagine. So as we enter into our text tonight, which is going to be Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, I want you to hold these stories in your mind. And I want you to see how the God of Scripture, the God that begins this revolution of redemption through a small ragtag group of 120 people, I want you to see the picture of how that God is going to do extraordinary things, not just through them, but your life as well. And how that God is better than any of these cultural stories in which we can choose to live. All right, Acts chapter one. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn there. There's Acts chapter one. We're mean verses one through eleven. These are the final words of Jesus. What we're about to read here is the final words of Jesus to his disciples before he leaves, before he ascends upon his throne. So imagine, uh, like, you are um, leaving for college, right? And like, your parents are having this, like you know, like last talk with you. Okay. Like that's kind of what's happening here, but on a much grander scale, but like imagine, you know, like they're talking to you and like at that moment, right? Like what are going to be the kind of things your parents share with you as you like head off to college? What kind of things? Will they be important things or unimportant things? Very important, right? Like think about the weight of that moment. I don't know, maybe maybe you didn't have that moment with your parents, but like you can imagine it, right? This is the last kind of talk, right? And so you're like, it's going to be these words of encouragement, these words of affirmation. It's going to be the things that your parents want you to know before you're, you're kind of uh, on your own. All right. And Jesus is about to leave his disciples on their own. And they're about to take a wild ride. And you'll see that if you keep coming back as we journey through the book of Acts. But these are just like Jesus, very important words to them that he wants to share with them. These are the, you know, you got to think like these are the these are the things like here's what I want you to remember. All right. So in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. So who wrote the book of Acts? Anybody? Come on. Luke, all right? So Luke writes Acts. Now, what else did Luke write? Luke, all right. So that's what he's talking about. In my former book, The Gospel of Luke, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, that phrase is going to matter um, at the end. Until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself... Uh, To them and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of forty days and he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. Now, for them, what was the kingdom of God? You've been here the past two years, you should know the answer to this question. A Messiah is going to come in, he's going to overthrow who? And he's going to restore who? Israel. Right? Messiah is going to come in, overthrow Rome, and restore Israel as a nation state, as in the days of King David and King Solomon. Good job. Good job. All right. So that's the kingdom of God. They still have missed the point. You're going to see this in a second. They still think that's what's going to happen. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. All right. This is it. These are these final words, right? These are these final words. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised the gift which you heard me speak about for john baptized with water but in a few days you will be baptized with the holy spirit now when jesus uses the phrase holy spirit he's talking about the kingdom of god for them those things would be equated when the holy spirit comes on god's people that means that the kingdom of god has arrived all right so verse six then they gathered around him and they asked him lord are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Do you see their confusion, right? For then the kingdom of God is God restoring Israel as a nation state and overthrowing the Roman oppressors. So, the Holy Spirit's coming. That means the kingdom of God's coming. Holy cow, it's happening, guys. He's going to finally do it. Verse 7, he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. Now, if you're a disciple, right, and you followed this guy for three years, you experienced his death, you experience, like, the three days in the tomb, and then you experience his resurrection, right? And you, you you were devastated at his death. You were devastated for those three days. But then he raised from the dead, and you're like, oh, my goodness, it's going to happen again. And then he's saying the Holy Spirit's about to come, and you think that God's uh, God's finally going to do all the things he had promised to do. But then Jesus says, by the way, it's not for you to know. How do you respond? That Your disciple, what's your response to this? What? What do you mean? What do you Yeah, you're upset, right? What else? Come on, how are you responding? Like, you mad at them? Disappointed? Confused? All right. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses, hear this, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight. They were looking up intently into the sky as he was going. Right, you can just imagine this, right? All all 11 disciples just kind of staring. I mean, you I mean, this is like this crazy, surreal moment. And in some ways, it's like kind of joyous, but in some ways, you're kind of like, oh, crap, he's leaving. And it's kind of like sad, and they're just all very confused. And they're just kind of staring, I imagine, with very blank faces up in the sky. And they were looking intently into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking at the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken who has uh, been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way uh, you have seen him go into heaven. So we see here, right? It's this is final experience before what we looked at last week. This final experience of of like Jesus' final words to these disciples before they, they have this crazy experience where the Holy Spirit comes and the first gospel sermon's preached and the crowds respond in mass, right, where they're cut to the heart and repent. And so the question is, what are the things that Jesus passes on to them? right? And I just want to point out four things from this text and then we'll be done. all right? Four things from this text that, they, that he passes on to so them. The first thing that he passes on to them is that they are a people okay? What happens if a leader leads leaves a group, right? If a leader leaves a group, what is often happens? What often happens? It crumbles, it crumbles right? And the, everyone just kind of disintegrates, and they kind of disperse, and they go in each, uh, and everyone goes in their own direction. But what you see in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, is all these plural pronouns. And it stands in the line, uh, a great tradition of communal commissions throughout the entire uh, scripture, okay? Right? So in Genesis chapter 1, You have God saying, let us make man in our image, right? Who is he speaking to? Himself. The God who is a community in and of himself creates community, right? And they were made in his image. Male and female, he created them. Not male is made in the image of God and females not. Not females created in the image of God and males not. But both together only then communicate the image of God. It's a community from the beginning. We see this explicitly in Genesis chapter 2. Right? The first thing that's declared not good in God's creation is what? Man alone. The first thing in all of the Bible that's declared not good is the fact that man's alone. And that's why God creates woman. Genesis chapter 12. There's this great commission of Abraham. And God tells him, and through you I will bless all nations. (laughs) but it's not just Abraham, it's Abraham and his descendants. Exodus chapter 19, God turns the Israelites into a people, right? So there were slaves in Egypt. He takes them out of, being, out of slavery, and it says in Exodus chapter 12 that they are a mixed multitude. So they don't actually have an ethnic identity that they share. There's nothing tying them together. But then in Exodus chapter 19, he says, I, you are my chosen people, a royal priesthood. We see this line of communal commissions. God always sends people. He never sends individuals. And so the first thing that we see here, right, is that if we want to experience a revolution of redemption, if we want to become a revolutionary people, then it has to take place in community. All right, think about this, right? If you want to experience the transformation of God, it will not take place alone. And this is not some like plea to get you to show up to church on Sunday and connect on Wednesday nights. But this is a plea for you to engage in spiritual conversation with one another. To learn what your, your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ are struggling with. To learn what uh, for you to be open and vulnerable, vulnerable with them about what you're struggling with. This is really, if anything, a plea for you to actually engage in your prayer groups. If you want to grow spiritually... It will not take place by you doing spiritual practices alone. It will only take place as you rub shoulders with other people who are trying to live in the same Christ-like way that you're living. You cannot grow alone. You can only grow in community. If you want to be a group of people who can bring a revolution of redemption out in the world around you, right, then you must first experience the transformation of God in your presence, right, and in your midst, but the only way that's going to happen is if you are open to other people and have other people be open to you. Transformation that comes from God only happens in community. If we want to be a group of people whose overflow is the transformation that comes from Christ, then we actually have to be a people in the first place. We have to be pushed deeply into one another's lives. So that's the first thing that I think is passed down, is that God makes them a people. Jesus makes them a people. He, he, communi- he communicates to them, you are a group. This will happen through you as a people. The second thing that, I, that Jesus communicates to them, the second thing that I think Jesus is passing down onto them, is this idea of promise, right? Two times in this story, we see the disciples wanting something concrete. In verse 6, they say, Then they, it says, Then they gathered around him and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Right? Like, when is the thing going to happen? When are we going to be able to see what we believed? Verse 10, they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. Right? They were looking for something concrete. They were trying to understand what was happening. And in both times, in both times, they're invited to live into the promises of God. After, cha- after verse 6, when they're saying, hey, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Jesus says, wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Wait on the promise of the Holy Spirit. In verse 10, right, as they're looking up, then the angel, then the angel comes down and they say, hey, just as he ascended, he's going to descend. In other words, wait till the second coming of Christ. In other words, what's being communicated in this text, what the, what the, the thing that Jesus is passing on to his disciples is that you need to live inside the promises of God. If you want to be a people who can experience transformation and then extend that transformation out into the world, a people who, are, who have a revolution of redemption in their midst and who are also bringing about a revolution of redemption in the world around you, then you no longer live in the realities of your world. But you live inside the reality of the promises of God. Think about the idea of transformation. How does it happen? The first thing that has to happen is you have to totally transform and change your worldview. You can no longer live in the stories of the world, but you have to live as if the promises of God are more real than anything that you can perceive with your five senses. That the promises of God are more tangible, more practical, and more worth shaping the entirety of your lives around than anything that you can see, taste, touch, hear, or smell. The third thing, the third thing that he passes on to them is this idea of participation. What is one of, something else that happens, right? When a leader leaves, what else, what else happens, right? So sometimes the group tend to... Can disintegrate. But what else can happen? There can be a what? Power vacuum. That's lit- Ben Jackson. It's like you rub my nose. So there can be a power vacuum and everyone's clamoring for power, right? You can imagine, right? As Jesus ascends, he's no longer here and all the disciples are trying to figure out which one of them is going to be the most powerful. But Jesus isn't leaving. Because he's ascending through his throne does not mean that he's absent. It means now that he's present and active everywhere. He's no longer constrained to his body. It means that Jesus is working absolutely everywhere. The book of Acts is originally called the book of Acts because it's called the Acts of the Apostles. But most people uh, say that, you know, we really should call it the Acts of the Risen Lord Jesus. Because who's actually the main character of the book of Acts? It's not Paul. It's not Peter. It's not any of the 12 disciples. It's Jesus at work in and through these people. And so what he's inviting them into is this idea of participation. Verse 8, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth, right? Think about this very idea of what it means to be a witness. It means to say to the world, I'm not the main character of my story. But Jesus is. I'm not the main character or the center of the world. Christ is. Think about this for you, right? This is hard enough for the disciples, but you live in a culture that tells you that you are the center of the world. You live in a culture that is defined by, in my opinion, two things, particularly to the college campus, the idea of resume building, right? You're, you're told that you have to build your resume and that you're supposed to, to, to cultivate this certain kind of life. Right? You live in a world that is totally uh, saturated in social media usage, which I don't think I have to convince you. Creates high egos, right? In which we think the world revolves around us. And we are called not to be affirmed in this, not to just experience the actualization of this, becoming the best version of ourselves as an Instagram influencer. We're not called in the Christian faith, to experience the autonomy of this. But rather, right? we are called to transformation. We are called to change from being the main character of our story to witnessing to Christ as the main character of our story. And then finally, the power to pull all this off. Right? Now, this is not an easy thing. Right. imagine, right, you imagine, be the disciples for a moment, right? You follow Jesus around. you lost all hope at his death. You're confused and overjoyed at his resurrection. And now he's leaving. And he's giving you all these things to do. He's telling you that you're going to be his witness in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. He's telling you that you are going to help usher in the very kingdom of God, the thing that you had hoped for for generations and generations. And you're overwhelmed by it. But he doesn't leave you to your own devices, right? He says, wait on the gift of the promised Holy Spirit. I will send power from on high. And then he ascends into his throne. And you get this imagery in uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 9. It says, uh, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. And this is imagery from Daniel chapter 7, right? This is uh, the, the idea of the Son of Man, which is Jesus' favorite uh, thing to call himself. He says, he was given authority and glory and sovereign power, and all nations of people in every language worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. And that's like the imagery, as Jesus is hidden by the clouds, it's saying that he is that person. He is the one whose kingdom will never be destroyed, whose dominion will never pass away. And he will enable and empower us through the promised Holy Spirit to live out this life to which he's called us in which we experience a revolution of redemption that God's bringing about in our lives. And then we share that revolution of redemption out in the world around us by witnessing to the work of Christ in our everyday lives. And the thing that stands behind all of these things, the thing that I have been, I want you to get to tonight, the thing that I think runs in direct opposite uh, direction of the stories of autonomy and affirmation and actualization is this, a posture of expectation, right? Because none of these things work. None of these things work unless we have a posture of expectation, right? This idea that we expect God to work, right? The only way we can become a people is if we expect God to make us a people. The only way that we can live in the promises of God rather than the, the, the stories of our world, right? the only way we can have that kind of worldview shift is if we expect God to fulfill his promises. The only way that we can participate in what God's doing in this world is if we expect him to be at work in it. And the only way right, that we can live into the power of God is if we actually expect that he's going to empower us. And so, like, the question and the key passage, or the key passage I think that we have to engage with tonight is Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote all the thing. I wrote about all the things that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, like, what, what is the interesting word in that sentence? Began, began right? Do you believe that? And the question that you need to grapple with tonight, the question that you need to face tonight, the question, if you really don't want to live in the stories of affirmation and actualization and autonomy, but rather experience the transcendence and the transformation that God wants to bring about in your life, the revolution of redemption that God wants to bring about in and through you, the question you have to grapple with is this. Do you really believe that that was just the beginning? Do you really believe when you read the Gospels that that was just the beginning of what Jesus was doing in the world? If you want to live in the promises of God, if you want to experience the power of God, if you want to be part of the people of God, if you want to participate in the very work of God in this world, the question you have to ask yourself is do you actually believe that God is Present and active in your here and now? Do you actually expect God to show up and show out? Are we a people who wake up every morning expecting God to do something miraculous? Are we a people who show up every Wednesday night expecting God's Spirit to work in our midst and do transformative things? Are we a people who show up to our prayer groups expecting God to bring us closer to one another? Are we a group of people who show up to dinner and discussion expecting to hear God speak through one of our fellow students? Are we a group of people who walk onto that campus looking for how God's already at work because we expect him to be at work? Or are we a people who are pretty comfortable with the status quo? Not looking for God to disrupt or transform or help us transcend our feeble lives. Are we an expectant people? Because if you get the vision that Jesus was trying to pass down to his disciples in Acts chapter one, if you get that, then you will become an expectant person you'll expect God to show up and do miraculous things each and every day. And if you just like, so what I want us to do is I want you to wake up every morning. And for me, it's after I've had my first cup of coffee because it's not really worth me doing this before I've had my first cup of coffee. But I want you to wake up every morning this week and I just want you to pray to God that he would show you how he's at work in your life in the world around you. So that we might become a more expectant people. Maybe it'll happen on campus, maybe it'll happen in this building, maybe it'll happen around the dinner table, maybe it'll happen in your prayer group, maybe it'll happen, I don't know where. But if you wake up every morning this week from Wednesday or from Thursday to Wednesday, and you ask God to show you how he's at work, sincerely, I guarantee you he'll answer that. and I guarantee you it'll begin to transform your life.